Welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of the other partners in the law firm. We are going to talk about elder law issues because that's what this podcast is, elder law issues. Elizabeth, uh, this question has come up a lot from my clients over the years, but it seems to me like I'm getting it more recently. Clients say, well, you've talked me into doing a living trust, and, uh, and I understand that's a substitute for my will. So why do I have to do a will also? When you get that question, how do you explain it to people? I let people know that the will in this case, if you have a standard revocable trust, which I think many people think of as a living trust, is that the will is a really boring document. It's probably two pages. The will does a couple of things. It directs what's supposed to happen to property. If there's any property that is located, that is not titled to your trust, that is in your name when you die. This has to be property that doesn't have a beneficiary designation or a beneficiary deed on it. So I tell them that they may never actually have someone who needs to be the personal representative or the executor of their estate and put things into their trust, but that the will essentially is the instrument that informs who and what is supposed to be directed into the trust. And for folks who do really good jobs at funding their trusts, they don't ever really need to have a will. But if you don't have one, it's a real problem because there's really no substitute for that kind of document if somebody dies and there are assets that are found outside of the trust. You have to then follow the rules of intestacy, which for many people, Robert, is not exactly what they want to have happen when they die. So the whole point for most people of executing a revocable living trust, um, and by the way, terminology, a living trust, a revocable trust, sometimes people say loving trust as between husband and wife, all those terms are by and large interchangeable for our purposes of our conversations today. So if you've done a living trust or a revocable trust or a revocable living trust, uh, that's a will substitute and people think, so I don't need a will, but the trust only works to avoid probate to the extent that assets have been transferred to the trust, as you say, Elizabeth. So uh, so if you don't transfer assets to the, to the trust and you don't sign a will, then the rules of intestate succession will control where the stuff that you didn't transfer to the trust, uh, where it goes. And that's almost certainly not what you want. So usually your, your will, when you do a trust, your will just leaves everything to the trust. But why can't you solve that problem by just putting everything in the trust's name? Well, Robert, sometimes there are things that actually cannot or should not be titled to the trust during your lifetime. So we have many people who have things like 401ks or IRAs. These are really special financial accounts. The instruments that deal with these accounts are often beneficiary designations so that when the account owner dies, you look at the beneficiary designation to figure out how to distribute the account, where it should go. Something like an IRA is never something that you want to put into your trust during your lifetime. And so we think about things like this, Robert, when we consider trust funding, right? What should be directed into the trust when you die? And sometimes people forget to put on beneficiary designations to assets. And so wills are helpful because they're really instruments that can direct things into a trust. But I mentioned earlier that, yes, it's important to have a will, not only though, because putting things in your trust is an important step to avoid probate, but 
Your will is also going to say things about what you want to happen when you die to your body, your final arrangements, who would be in charge of things like that. So yes, the will has a lot of power with respect to how assets might be distributed if they're outside of your trust, but it also can do other things. And so people who have trust and have funded their trust and have all their beneficiary designations tightened up and know that they can avoid probate, they still need a will, Robert, to make sure that there is somebody who is designated to handle things like their obituary or where their cremains should be scattered. Which is not to suggest that you have to probate your estate to determine who can write your obituary or or what's going to happen to, to your cremains. Uh, but you've expressed your wishes in the document if you have strong wishes, and, and that's something that can help guide people, even though it may not have legal relevance. I usually tell clients, though, that if they have executed a trust and a pour-over will and a health care power of attorney and a financial power of attorney and a living will and a mental health care power of attorney, in that whole compendium of documents, their will is probably the least important document of their entire collection. And they may have thought they were coming to the office to do a will in the sort of generic sense, but really what they were doing was all those other documents. And the will itself may not be terribly important. And the will, we need to also remember, Robert, that the will and the trust will do a few things that we hope they'll do it in unison. One of the things is calling out family relationships. So. In your will, typically the first or second paragraph at the very beginning, most people will explain whether or not they're married, whether they have children, maybe if they have stepchildren, whether they want their stepchildren to be treated as if they were their their own children by blood under the law. So your will will often address those things, which are really important when we start to look at questions about intestate succession. Your trust will also, at least at Fleming and Curdy, have a paragraph that talks about family relationships. And so I tell people that those notes, the notes in your will, are also important, even if your will does not go through probate, which we hope you can avoid. They're still important for purposes of declaring your intentions with respect to family relationships. And that includes omission, Robert. So if you decide that you want to specifically omit your second cousin twice removed and have that omission stated in your trust and in your will, this is kind of a belt and suspenders approach to confirm that you may not want to have a person or a class of people considered to be folks under the laws of intestacy who would otherwise inherit. A handful of times I've had clients who were adamant that they didn't want to sign a will. They said, um, the whole point of doing this is to avoid probate. And if I sign a will, that's saying that we will have to have a probate. And and I want to make sure we don't. So I don't want to sign a will. And, And I've had to explain to them that whether you sign a will is not the determinant of whether you have a probate of your estate. Uh, people sign wills and don't end up going through the probate process all the time, either because they've also done trusts or they've made beneficiary designations or they've died without any assets. The will doesn't require a probate. What determines whether you're going to have a probate is whether you have assets in your name that are not otherwise disposed of. And if you don't have a will, then again, we're going to look at intestate succession rules So you probably want to do a will in almost every case. Everybody should have a will. The only question is whether you should also have a trust. And I would tell people, don't don't think too deeply about this. This is why you go to meet with a qualified attorney to talk to 
that person about your estate and what you want to have happen and what needs to be put in place. Sometimes, Robert, I think sometimes folks are trying to kind of work through in their minds the whys, and there are instruments that are part of every estate plan. We haven't talked about an assignment of personal property today, but that's another ancillary document that can be incredibly important when we consider how people transfer things like their tangible personal property to the trust. These ancillary documents, just trust us. You need it. So, short answer, when you come to see us to do a, your living will, we're also going to prepare a trust. And it might not be very lengthy, it may not have a lot of provisions in it, but it is going to almost certainly have one provision that leaves everything to your trust. And yes, we're going to make you sign a will as well. Thanks for joining us. We've been talking about elder law issues. The we in this case is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, a partner in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy, and me, Robert Fleming, also a partner in that same firm. We kind of hope you'll join us again next week for our elder law issues. Talk with you then.